HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Happy Sunday and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Our show is being produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. And our show today has been sponsored by Cabot Cooperative of Vermont. Uh, the New England and New York farm families who own Cabot are offering listeners a chance to win some of the world's best cheddar by calling Heritage Radio at 718-497-2128 or emailing info at heritageradionetwork.com. It's an excellent way to start the holidays, and I'll be picking a winner uh, by November 28th. Cabot Creamery is a proud supporter of what Heritage Radio Network is all about. And uh, on Cutting the Curd, we are all about cheese. Um, And today we're brushing up on the state of dairy in Alabama with Alice Birchnow, owner of Sweet Home Farm in Alberta, Alabama. Alice is a true pioneer in the American farmstead cheese movement and has been making and selling raw, raw cow's milk cheeses since 1985. Thanks for being with us, Alice. Thank you, Anne, for inviting me. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, so, I, did you hear the theme song? We, ha- we couldn't I resist. <laughs> All about it. Actually, uh, that's kind of funny because the uh, state just changed their license plates to say Sweet Home, so uh, we broke down and got vanity plates. <laughs> <laughs> what are your oh, say? Our, our, our license plates say Sweet Home Cheese now. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so how, um, tell me the, I mean, so you named the farm, did you name the farm after the Leonard Skinner song, or is Sweet Home Alabama a phrase that predates Leonard Skinner? Well, I don't know if it predates Leonard Skinner, but uh, when we first started dairying in uh, western Michigan, my um, before I met my husband, he had called his farm place up there, Soggy Bottom Acres. And we didn't think that would probably be a very good name for a dairy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we changed it when we got started in the dairy business there, and we liked it well enough that we just carried it with us when we moved to Alabama. And so what uh, prompted the move from Michigan to Alabama? Well, we were um, trying to get in the dairy business at a time in the early 80s when uh, there was a huge milk surplus a lot of uh, commodity cheese being held in storage, and uh, 
costing the government a lot of money, and uh, they were actually paying farmers to go out of business. So uh, based on whatever their annual production level was, they would uh, give them an incentive to go out of business, and either the cows had to all go to the slaughterhouse or be exported, and they also had to stay out of the dairy business for at least five years. So it wasn't a real... Uh, good time to get into business, and because we wanted to be small, they really weren't very supportive of that, and also because we wanted to process, they weren't familiar with that at all. The whole notion of uh, farmstead cheese making was a totally new idea, and um, it just gave us a lot of resistance, and we just decided with the challenges with the weather and having to keep the cows in the barn uh, all winter and uh, agricultural taxes were going up at such a phenomenal rate. And it just was kind of a serendipitous thing. We had some friends visiting from uh, uh, Alabama that were in the fishing business at a, about this whole same time. And... About two weeks later, my husband, Doug, was down here looking for property. (laughs) Uh, It was just a confluence of events that uh, all brought us here. And I grew up in the South, so it feels very natural to be here. Absolutely. Well, that's that's amazing. You know, hearing you talk about, um, you know, dairy in the early 80s, I mean, it's probably had several... Um, incarnations of being being like that, the situation with uh, an overproduction of milk. But it seems like we're sort of in a similar situation right now. Would you say that, um, I know you guys operate outside of the commodity business, of course, but um, would you say that now is kind of a similar time to when you guys first got your start in the dairy business? Well, the commodity milk business has always been a kind of a roller coaster event when, you know, the prices go way up. People increase their herds, and everything's great for a couple years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like it nobody crashes. can nobody can help it. They just have to. They they all want to. Yeah, everyone wants to get bigger at the same time. Right. So when when money is is good and the pay price is good and farmers are making money and, and the banks are lending money and so people just think it's a good time to expand and then it always kind of it's just been this way for as long as as we've been following the dairy business. You know, expansion, construction, expansion, contraction, but the pay price for uh, fluid milk to to the commodity market has not kept pace with inflation. Yeah, so it's a really tough business to be in. So you guys, so you guys chose farmstead cheese, um, and like you said, at at that time, farmstead cheese in the U- in the U.S. was pretty much unheard of. Um, how did you educate yourself about farmstead cheese? It was pretty tough. Um, uh, we didn't have much information. Um, we uh, looked around for books, and all we could really find was um, the, the Encyclopedia of Country Living by Carla Emery. And, I have that um, book. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of wonderful information in there, but uh, it, it got us started, and we visited um, a Michigan State University where they made cheese there, and, and not too long after that, um, New England cheese making came into being. So it was kind of, we were right on the, the beginning of the whole the artisan cheese movement. So, And uh, took some classes at University of Guelph when we decided to make that transition from 
homestead to commercial and just got going. And I, I still am taking classes and uh, researching, but I think it, now it's much easier time because people have access to the Internet and uh, all the information that's out there, advances in uh, culture technology and more uh, uh, appropriate scale equipment be available. I think it's just a really great time for cheesemakers. Hey, guys, we actually got a question on Twitter for Alice, and uh, they want to know how do other farmers in Alabama react to your, um, your high-quality value-added product? Is there solidarity or suspicion and jealousy? Basically, you know, how are the other farmers reacting? Well, you know, when we first moved down here, uh, there was one farmer who every time we saw him in town uh, said, you can't make a living on 40 acres. You can't make a So he lived long enough to eat his words. But, but you know, before, <laughs> if we told people, other farmers, that we were milking 12, 15 cows, they'd kind of laugh in our face and move away. <laughs> And now there's, uh, when we started, and for many years, there were only two cheese producers, two or three cheese producers in the whole state. Now we have ten at the last count, and there's three uh, in process of going up. And we have some bottlers. We have our first uh, certified organic um, dairy, uh, only one in the state. So I think the attitude now is, Yes, we can, <laughs> uh-huh. and uh, and direct marketing is the way to go and because can, it's not a big dairying state. Uh, it's a little more challenging to to do things in the south. But our big plus here is that we have grass and we can keep our cows outside all year long. Now, so, can yeah, you, it's definitely a groundswell of support now. That that is that is really. Um, really awesome and encouraging to hear. Um, I was wondering if you can tell our listeners about how you guys market and sell your cheeses because it's pretty unique um, compared with some of the other, uh, you know, compared with most of the other cheesemakers in the country. Right. Well, because we decided to stay small and, you know, we're kind of a dinosaur in some aspects. We're a mom and pop operation and we have one uh, part-time person who helps us uh, retail. But because we weren't on a main highway, uh, we thought we could uh, have a mail-order business. And then we looked around, and we saw that there were no farmer's markets. So we said, well, that's not an option. There was absolutely nothing going on in the uh, farmer's market arena. Uh, So we tried um, uh, mail-order for a little while. We just didn't like it. We didn't like generating all the garbage that goes with mail order, you know, ice packs and shipping and insulation and all that, that trash, really, that you literally generate with, uh, with shipping. And we just were fortunate enough to choose a location that has a lot of uh, agriculture in the area where there's direct marketing. So people drive from farm to farm to get sweet potatoes or strawberries or fruit or whatever is and we're still very conveniently located in that pocket. So they became, we just said, well, what the heck, let's try retailing. <laughs> and so we got some very wonderful support from uh, media and newspapers and magazines, and people started coming to the farm, and then we just uh, tried to grow our business organically to a point where we could you know, support ourselves and, and manage uh, what we can 
Well, it's funny to hear you say that you're a dinosaur. Um, I was looking at the uh, website, the Southern Cheesemakers Guild website last night, and I was like, you know, Alice is my hero. No website, no email address. <laughs> you know, you guys just do your thing and, you know, and keep it keep it local and keep it close. And I think that is absolutely fantastic. Well, we That's my dream. we get a lot of wonderful <laughs> feedback. You know, I don't have to wonder what happened to the cheese. Did they get it lost? Did somebody mess up on the shipping? You know, the customer tastes, you know, we sample liberally. Our customer tastes everything before they buy. We cut everything to order so it's perfectly fresh. Uh, and people have the experience of coming to the farm. So, it's a formula that has worked for us. And now, um, you guys have been in business since uh, 1985. Um, do you see still continued and continued growth with uh, people coming out to the farm and, and no, buying cheese? No, actually, we, we, we had to uh, kind of contract our sales hours um, because uh, for a while we were um, – pretty much holding our production level at about 12 cows. And in 2000, we uh, upgraded all our equipment to make our you know, the physical work easier and got better equipment and an automatic stirrer and a vats and, and a big cooler. So we increased our production at that point by about 50%. So we could milk 15 cows. Mm-hmm. So at that point... We saw that there was still an opportunity to growth, but we didn't want to go there because, you know, we're limited. We only have uh, 40 acres for the dairy uh, and two people who are fast approaching 60. (laughs) So we decided, well, we're just going to cut back on our uh, sales opportunity hours. So we used to be open six days a week, then we cut it back to four days a week, and now we're just open two days a week. So... And those are pretty intense two days, but um, people still come, and uh, we try to, you know, keep them happy. Well, I think, you know, it's just amazing. Um, I was actually just yesterday, I went up to Cato Corner Farm, a little dairy farm in in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. um, and somebody asked them the question, you know, has the economy affected your... Um, you know, your farm and, and your cheese sales. And back, you know, in the beginning of the show, we were talking about the commodity market and how how um, fragile it is and how susceptible it is to all these ups and downs and whims of the market. And um, Mark, who's the cheesemaker at Cato Corner, said, actually, no, you know, we've experienced the opposite. Um, you know, our farm is going really strong and um, we're seeing more and more cheese sales, more people coming to the farm. And I just think it's really amazing to hear stories like yours and like Cato Corners where, you know, you really have established yourselves as an entity outside of the normal, quote unquote normal, though, though it's not very normal, uh, economy. <laughs> and um, and it's it's just, you know, by breaking down barriers between the, the producer and the end consumer, it's, it's really fantastic, just meaningful work and and really and and tasty obviously um so i i just think it's incredible as a as a model for people to consider who are who are farmers or who are thinking of getting into farming um there are so many different ways uh that uh you can you can make a go of it oh absolutely and then, you know i can see you know when we do hay and do field work how wonderful it is just to you know be on a tractor and 
and uh, have the wind in your face and, and not have to worry about anything. You know, retailing can be very intense. I know you have a retail location, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you really need to get yourself, put yourself in your consumer shoes and, and, and give them what they want. Hey guys, we got another question uh, through yeah. email this time, and they want to know what the greatest challenges of being a cheesemaker are. Well, you know, as we get older, it's the physical labor, um, and uh, we we really have decided that, that at that point that that was one of the reasons why we uh, didn't want to grow. Um, and you have to be a good people manager if you do want to grow, and we're not great at that either. <laughs> and we know that. <laughs> so I think, you know, physically it's a very demanding uh, uh, work, and, and you have to love it and, and not mind getting your hands dirty and uh, be willing to make the, the financial investment and take any of the assumed risks that you would get into with any business. Now, how about technically, Alice? What, when you come up against technical issues when you're making a cheese, is that a challenge, and how do you deal with it? Well, that's my favorite part. Uh, you know, my background uh, was in nutrition. I, I worked as a clinical nutrition, nutritionist for a few years, so I really enjoy the technical part. So uh, I've done a lot of research on cultures and uh, the, that whole aspect of uh, acidification and how different cultures and different acidification profiles can influence your cheese and and that to me is the most fun part of cheese making the the R&D the the, uh, biochemical aspect of of how things work and how they transform as you go along and you watch that grass turn into milk and then the cheese maker takes over and and turns that milk into cheese, and, and how it changes through the seasons, and just a really uh, enlightening experience. And and never ending, kind of the, the different no, nuances of it. Different going on every single day. So I think that's what makes it so uh, fun. Because if if you weren't having fun doing this, it would be way too much work. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, what kind of cheeses do you guys make? What are what are the ranges of, the range of your cheeses? Well, we do well, probably about uh, 12 or 14 different kinds, um, you know, a Jack and, and Gouda, and we do a lot of season varieties because our, our customers like that. Uh, we do a Blue, we do some Alpine styles, uh, some Italian uh, grating cheeses. Uh, uh, we do a cheese fudge, which is kind of a dessert type of thing, and... Uh, couple of house specialties. We do a, a Perdido and a Feta, all at least 15 different kinds. Wow. Wow. It's making me hungry. Cheese, <laughs> cheese fudge. I've never had that before. I want to come down and you try that. You have to think of chocolate cheesecake. So Ooh. <laughs> get you in the right mindset. <laughs> well, I think it's time for us to take a quick break, but when we come back, uh, we'll talk more with Alice Birchno of Sweet Home Farm in Alabama and uh, hear more about milk and the state of cheese in that state.
And we're back on Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Dan Saxelby. Uh, my guest today is Alice Birchno. Uh, if you have questions for us, uh, please email uh, info at heritageradionetwork.com or tweet them to the, the Twitter feed at HRN Updates. Um, <laughs> we were talking about how much uh, I, I dislike technology, but those kinds of things are kind of actually fun. People, people from all over end up you know, commenting on the shows and bringing their questions. So we do appreciate it. Um, so Alice, um, can you tell us a little bit about the Southern Cheesemakers Guild? Um, the South isn't typically an area where people think about tons of cheese, um, but there is an ever-increasing number of, of cheesemakers in the South. Yes, um, the, the Guild, uh, most of actually the members in the Guild are based in North Carolina, and uh, North Carolina has a really uh, strong cheesemaking community. A lot of uh, the operations are very small, and I think some of the incentive there was uh, when they were encourage, encouraging farmers to get out of uh, the tobacco business. So they had some money appropriated for people to get into some other types of alternative agriculture, even though none of the cheesemakers I know were used to be tobacco farmers. But <laughs> this whole sense of uh, looking for other avenues in, in the agricultural community, a different way to make a living. So most of the, the cheesemakers are concentrated there. It, it's a pretty loose uh, organization. We have a meeting like every other year, and we communicate online. Um, but uh, it's a it's a great group. When we do get together, we have uh, we try to have a little workshop event and um, drink some wine and eat lots of cheese and and just uh, enjoy each other's company. Well, that's it's fantastic that those organizations um, exist because knowledge sharing, I feel like, is one of the things that makes. American cheesemakers, such a unique group of people. Um, the fact that everyone's so willing to share pretty much everything they know with everybody else. Um, I mean, you've probably been a great mentor to, to many cheesemakers. You know, when I, when I started, there wasn't that many people you could ask questions of. And um, I think we all kind of had to share the, the little information that was out there. Um, I was fortunate enough go to the very first American Cheese Society meeting at Cornell. So that was a really exciting time because people from all over the country came and and were looking for answers, and uh, it was uh, kind of fun to be in on the ground level of that. And what year was that, the first ACS meeting? Well, it's over 25 years. Wow. Wow. Just thinking about, I mean, I, I saw you at the American Cheese Society in Seattle this summer. Yeah. And just thinking about, I think there are probably 2,000 people there or something crazy like that. I, I think that the membership now is like 1,200. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's grown quite a bit. So <laughs> for many, many years, it, it was pretty uh, stable at about 400. But uh, I'd say the last five years or so, it's been phenomenal in growth. Now, what about, so are there any other um, sort of festivals um, for, or, or sort of events for cheese people, cheesemakers in the South or in Alabama? Not, not specifically for cheese, um, but whenever there is a festival in the area, we have a big shrimp festival, and there's a local sausage festival in our community, and and uh, whenever those festivals are happening, we also always see a big influx 
flux of business on those days, but nothing specific for dairy in the South, I think, because the, the South doesn't have a tradition of uh, dairying. Uh, rural electrification really didn't uh, become widespread till the 1940s, so uh, I think most of the, the uh, cheese-making uh, avenues were going up in cooler climates. There's not really a tradition of cheesing and making in the South. So a lot of the uh, the seniors in the area like to tell me how their mothers used to make um, cottage cheese and then hang it out on the clothesline to drip. <laughs> <laughs> so that was their home scale cheese making. That was the home scale cheese making. Yes. Cool. Very cool. Well, as far as your cows go, though, you said, you know, an advantage to, to your area is that you do have grass all year round. Um, so is it a good place to raise dairy cows? Well, you know, they get pretty stressed in the, in the summer heat, but uh, we try to give them lots and lots of shade. We have a really a nice uh, grove of pecans where they can hang out and drink water, but um, we love that they can be outside all the time. Uh, we have, uh, in fact, uh, Doug just finished planting uh, for winter pastures, so we have uh, some cool weather grasses and, and legumes that uh, are already up. And uh, they'll continue to grow right up through uh, May. And, and our really prime grasses are like from the end of January through the end of May. So we really have a, just a brilliantly yellow milk at that time. Um, right now we're, we're supplementing with a little hay. We get hay from a neighbor who lives less than two miles away because we've had... We actually had a light early frost already, mm. but the, and the and the winter grasses aren't quite fully up yet, so the cows are eating a little hay. But uh, yeah, they get exercise and they're outside, so no manure to move around. They they move it all themselves. <laughs> let them let them do the heavy lifting. I like that. <laughs> um, well, so I know that something that I wanted to talk to you about was the um, the issue of raw milk. Um, you make raw milk cheeses, and you're obviously a raw milk advocate. Um, but it seems like, you know, there have been a few instances lately of some people having a hard time um, with raw milk. Can you uh, sort of, I don't know, give our listeners an idea of what the climate is like in Alabama surrounding raw for, milk? For fluid raw milk, uh you would have to go through the Department of Agriculture to get a license to sell pet food. Hmm. And if you have a grade A license, you cannot also have a pet food license because they don't want grade A producers selling raw milk. So, And to my knowledge, there are no licensed pet food milk producers. Okay, so that's pretty cut and dry. So they're not interested in having people sell fluid raw milk. Um, and what about for you as a cheesemaker? Have you encountered difficulties? Uh, with my health regulators? Yeah. No, actually, uh, because there's a, a dairy deficit in the South, well, they were very welcoming here. Uh, I have a, a good working relationship with them. They were supportive. Um I always get uh, very high scores on my inspections and have uh, have really uh, have had a good support system from them. So uh, I, I can't complain about my, my dairy inspectors at all. They've been uh, really good to work with. 
Well, that's that's good. That's encouraging to hear. Um, well, it's funny. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, at this year's American Cheese Society Conference, there was a lot of talk about terroir um, and the importance of terroir in cheesemaking. Um, and on the one hand, I'm really, really excited about it because I feel like terroir is, you know, sort of the, the loose translation is taste of place from, from the French. Um, and it's about, you know, making milk from, you know, the grass and your land and then turning that milk into, into cheese that, you know, has a specific flavor due to that. Um, but I feel like, you know, as uh, there's another side to terroir, which is the economy and the people and the food traditions uh, behind it, um, meaning that, you know, in France and Italy and in a bunch of other places, terroir has grown up over hundreds of years right. as um, cheeses have kind of evolved with, you know, the climate, with the, you know, local agricultural practices Um and so I feel like we're still pretty far away from getting there. But a good building block to getting there would be the greater um, acceptance and encouragement of raw milk cheese production. Um, because raw milk is kind of the building block, you know, of of um, those flavors. Um, so... I don't know what. What do you think about uh, what do you think about terroir? Well, I and think the whole, the, whole uh, the consciousness of the American culture is everybody wants their to do their own thing, and in these desert, uh, ALC or DOP uh, regions in Europe, uh, terroir is tightly defined. The areas is tightly defined and the milk and the procedure for cheesemaking and everything is very well defined, but all the cheesemakers in that area are producing one. So I think that's something very foreign to the American consciousness because everybody wants to do their own thing. I'm going to make this, and I'm going to call it my own name. And, And another person might copy that style but put a little twist on it and call it something else. So I see that but raw milk is very so difficult to, to uh, get Americans to do, to, to co-op into making all the same kind of cheese. It's true. Well, actually, we have one more call-in. Um, I think is, it sounds like the caller's on the line. Do, uh, are you with us, caller? Yes, I am. I'd like to say a couple things. First of all, great show. Uh, second of all, Anne, you know, you definitely, uh, cheese and sustainable agriculture needs more beautiful people in it, and uh, you definitely uphold that <laughs> and uh, draw attention to good things. And uh, the third thing I'd like to say is there's this idea also I've had of tetwar tet being the french for head uh-huh. and it's like knowledge of a people or a person or a place you know and i think uh the the knowledge of the people you know terroir talks of the soil tetwar talks of a kind of knowledge base that is built through pioneering products or farms like yours in alabama so i just thought it was an interesting new term that kind of conveys the knowledge of a head, of a hands, of the seasons, you know, in a specific place. Yeah, no, de- definitely. Thanks. Um, thanks for calling. Um, I, I think that, you know, maybe that has more um, resonance even than, than uh, you know, the idea of terroir, because... Right now, like like Alice, you were saying, it is about it's more about individuals, um, 
and individuals kind of honing their their craft and their ideas and then we're kind of seeing how that's all going to play out but um yeah it's a it's a it's a tricky but very interesting uh can right. of worms <laughs> right. i you know i think you know if if there was a region that wanted to do it it would take you know some very dedicated uh, cheese makers and farmers to to get on bar- board with that uh, i know uh one incident in Vermont where, you know, the, the Putnam's at uh, Thistle Hill have kind of set up another farm to produce their cheese. But, you know, just by his sense of place, his cheese is a little different from uh, the Putnam's. And so uh, I think, you know, they, they cooperate. But still, it, it's an expression of, of how the cheesemaker is, is working their milk and, and everything can be different just from farm to farm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, for me, yeah, I just feel like since there is so much individuality and so much difference in style of cheese, and and like you said, even two cheesemakers making the same cheese on two different farms, I feel like raw milk could be a real rallying cry, you know, because that's something that would definitely, you know, influence, you know, have have a great influence on the, on our dairy and cheese landscape. Um, But, uh, yeah, doesn't have to be as 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 dialed in and as um, specific as those European traditions, right? Yeah. Um, well, so what uh, what are your what are your plans for the farm? Do you guys have any uh, any exciting things coming up this fall? Or um, well, right now we're just uh, people are starting to get get in a holiday mood. We had some challenges this year because of the uh, oil spill on the Gulf. We're we're only ten miles from the Gulf, so. A lot of uh, people and individuals were uh, impacted by that. So uh, we're still not back to 100%, but we were much more fortunate than some other folks. Um, so uh, that that we're we're happy that's not front and center in the news every day anymore. Yeah, um, but that was. Uh, a big impact on this area. Now, would you say is is your area a place where people where a lot of um, people would come visit from it other is, places? Actually, um, we weren't so aware of that when we moved here, but yeah, it's a big tourist area. Mm, okay, and uh, we have tourists, a different category of tourists at different times of year. Um, uh, we get a lot of Midwesterners in the winter months, and then uh, spring break, and, and then summer beach. And fall uh, for central southerners like to come in the fall or in October. So it's pretty much a good tourist season here all year round. Wow, that's really interesting. So yeah, interesting to think about how an incident like that could affect an industry that has no no specific tie to the sea, right. but you know, just just proximity. Right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think we're just about out of time here, but, um, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday to, to talk with us and be on the show. It was my pleasure. And, um, I look forward to seeing you at next year's American Cheese Society Conference. Montreal. Montreal, here we come. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Anne. Thanks, Alice. And we'll see you next week on Cutting the Curd. 